So in 96, uh, I was serving in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I got a promotion, and so I got transferred from this 180-foot cutter in Seattle to a different ship in Port Angeles, and I was really excited because I got to be kind of one of the head of the, in the engineering department. Uh, I got to head up the engine room. So when I first reported on board of the ship, I wanted to check that out first. And I opened the watertight door into this big engine room and it almost like blinded me. I was not prepared for all of the chrome and the brass and even the deck plates uh, were polished aluminum and they reflected all the light. And so if, if you've ever been on a ship, like polished aluminum deck plates aren't the most practical thing to have. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's gonna be a lot of maintenance to, to keep all that up. A and then I saw some head bobbing over in the corner. Someone was polishing as I went in and it was a kind of a bald head. And I thought, oh, this must be, you know, one of my junior enlisted people. I, I'll be their new supervisor. I'll go over and introduce myself. And I walk over and then I see on this person's collar devices, these giant anchors. And I realize that's the chief engineer. That's my boss. Uh, on his hands and knees polishing uh, the bright work. I, in my experience up to that point, I had only seen chief engineers like be good at a few things, um, drinking lots of coffee, uh, smoking a lot of cigarettes. I don't know how they smoke so many cigarettes in one day, but, um, and um, swearing and playing cards really well. Like they did all of those things really well, but I'd never seen one on their hands and knees doing the work of a menial like, entry-level coastie. Uh, it really changed my view of what it means or what it meant to be a leader, to be a chief engineer. In the text we're going to look at this evening, Jesus's actions redefine for me what it means to be great. He redefines what greatness is all about. And as we engage the text, I'd like to ask you to think about two questions. How does Jesus define greatness? How does Jesus define greatness? And what does it look like for me to be Jesus's disciple in light of that definition of greatness? What does it mean for me to be his student in light of his greatness? So let's think about those two questions as we consider this text, uh, John 13, 1 through 17. And again, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of John? Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the same towel with which he was girded. So he, when he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand thereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, before we dive into foot washing and service and all of this kind of thing, let me just hang with the opening sentences, which really frames this whole passage. First of all, the setting, so important. The setting in John 13 is the Passover season. The Passover is approaching, and that's important. Uh, you know, just to refresh your memory, the Passover, remember, is one of the most, if not the most significant festival in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish calendar. Nearly 1,500 years before this story in John 13, the people of Israel were held captive as slaves in Egypt. Now, God heard their cry and sent Moses to deliver them, and, and of course, you remember the story. Moses goes to Pharaoh, the king of, of Egypt, and, and Pharaoh is stubborn and will not let these people go. And so God continues to try and coerce Pharaoh to kind of show that Yahweh is actually more powerful than the gods of Egypt and the leaders of Egypt, which at the time was the most powerful nation in the known world. And so he sends, you know, like gnats, and they're bugging everybody, and Pharaoh says, stop the gnats, I'll let them go, and so God stops the gnats, and then he doesn't let them go, and so then he puts, like, boils all over their body, you know, like, that's gross, like, boils, these bumps and everything, and, oh, get these things off of me, and, you know, nine times this goes on, and Pharaoh says, I'll let them go, and he doesn't let them go, until the tenth time, this horrible plague, the plague of plagues, God says, okay, this time, I'm going to take your firstborn. I'm not just talking about, like, your lower peon people, Pharaoh, your firstborn, everybody's firstborn. And then he tells the Israelites, the angel of death is coming to take the firstborn of, I mean, all the Egyptians. And, and if you want him to pass over your house, here's what you do. You take a lamb, an unblemished lamb. You sacrifice this lamb. You put the blood of the lamb o- over the, the top of your doorpost, you know, over the lintel of your door, and you have this meal, the ceremonial Passover meal. And this is what the Israelites do, and the angel passes over, and they, they celebrate this as, as God's salvation over them, his intervention. Now, here's why I take the time to just pinpoint that detail, because John tells us in the beginning of John 13 that Jesus' hour has come. Jesus' hour has come. Up to this point, Jesus' hour had not come. When we think back to John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana, and, uh, you you know, his mom is upset that they ran out of wine and trying to get Jesus to do something about it. Jesus says, 
What does that have to do with us? Yeah, my hour has not yet come. Thank you, Carol. Somebody's listening. <laughs> Just yell it out, people. Uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We can be crazy. Yeah. This hour Jesus is talking about is just another way of saying his time. His time to go to the cross, his time to be a sacrifice like the lamb at the Passover to save us from our sin. And this should really come as no surprise. Did you know that the first words in John's gospel that aren't from the narrator, they come from John the Baptist, the first words about Jesus, and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first description we get of Jesus from a character in John's gospel. And in this story, it was the Passover season. Jesus' hour had come, the ultimate Lamb of God. He knows his hour has come. This is key. This isn't a surprise to him. And he knows he's going to leave this world in this way to be with his Father. But he loved his own his disciples until the end. The end in Greek is this word telos, where we get telescope, and it also is a word that can mean eternity or eternal. And so Jesus knows that in about 24 hours, give or take, he's going to be betrayed and crucified and abandoned by most of his closest friends. But he loved them to the end. As we'll find out, most of this crew would repent later on after his resurrection, and he would welcome them back. He loved them through it all. Jesus doesn't give up on us, and I just think that that's fantastic news. So John wants us to know that Jesus knows at least three things. First, he knows that his hour has come. He knows he's going to die. It's time. Second, he knows that the devil, also known as the Satan, which means the accuser, he knows that the devil has seduced one of his disciples, Judas, into betraying him. Jesus knows these two things. John goes to great lengths to show that God is in control of this whole situation. That Jesus is the one who lays down his own life by his own initiative. He's not a powerless victim of some evil plot. He's a willing participant. And he does this to display the glory of God, to show us what true greatness really is. Now, how can he do this? Like, like we know in theory, because we've read the story a bunch, and we know Jesus died for our sins, but like, how could a person really do that? Like, could you know all that stuff, and just be like, fine having dinner with your betrayer, and like, how, how could he do this? I, he knows where he's from, and he knows where he's going. John tells us this much. In our culture, you know, we hear a lot about um, people finding themselves. Uh, I've got to find myself. I've got to figure myself out. I've got to know myself. And that's, not, that's actually not a bad thing. I say it with a little smirk, but it's really, if you, if you look at even uh, the great spiritual giants of the Christian faith, uh, read Thomas Akempis and try and get uh, you know, a few pages in without him saying at least 13 times, like, know thyself. You know, it's an important thing to know who you are. But more important, or I would say, before you can really know yourself, truly, it's important to know whose you are, not just who you are. It's important to know where you are, 
but you'll find great hope and strength knowing where you come from and knowing where you're going. So where did you come from? (laughs) Whose are you? Okay, so repeat after me. I'm made in God's image. I'm made in God's image. I am God's beloved. I am God's beloved. I am part of God's family. If we just really believed that, like really, deep down, right, that's all I've got. No, I've got more, but just get that. That's who we are. Jesus knew his hour had come. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. Jesus knew to whom he belonged, where he came from, and where he was going. He was secure in himself and in his father, and in his father's ability to do what was best even when Jesus himself couldn't see it all. And this allowed him to give himself, and that is where we pick up the meat of the story. So imagine the scene, 13 guys lying on their left side, low table, kind of like a big, I'm imagining oval coffee table, some of the archaeological digs, wood doesn't hang up really well, doesn't really stand up, but that's, that's what we think, a low table, because we know from ancient Near Eastern customs, and we know from current Middle Eastern custom, that's still what people do often. Lay on the left side, because that's the dirty hand, you don't need it for eating anyway, you eat with this one, so you lay on the left, pillow, and everyone is kind of cascaded around this thing, and they're all there eating dinner together. They're talking. Mediterranean people talk at dinner. (laughs) And they're chatting and they're talking about all kinds of things like like friends who travel together all the time would probably talk about. Did you guys see that time like John tripped on the rock back there? They they have all these inside stories. They're talking about whatever they're talking about. They're having dinner together. And their leader, Jesus, gets up in the middle of the thing. Some people keep talking. Some people start noticing and he takes off his, his robe, his, his status symbol in the ancient world. What you wore said who you are. And then he takes that off and he puts on a towel, uh, the garb of a servant. And he puts water in a wash basin and he begins to go around. And the scripture doesn't tell us whether or not he said anything like, hey, don't freak out or hey, I'm doing this because. He just, just says he started washing their feet. And Peter is shocked. Like, Peter does not want anything to do with his master Jesus touching his feet. And I think that there's at least two things going on here, two layers of meanings. Let's take them one at a time. First, Jesus' surface value, you don't, yeah, you just can see it. He's turning traditional, like, rolls on their heads. The master in the scene is now the servant. Greatness is not being served. Greatness is serving others. You know, in ancient Jerusalem, you've heard this before, as with many ancient cities, there's like, there's no such thing as personal hygiene. Like, that's not a thing. Sorry, Corey wouldn't have a job as a dental hygienist. You know, she would just be maybe a, a tooth yanker, because people's teeth would just fall out. I mean, normal homes were grosser than a teenager's bedroom. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about here. So just, and buildings could sometimes have three stories. Sorry, Elsa, your room's probably really clean. Sorry about that. I, got, I, 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 saw, I saw you talking. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. 
Yeah, yeah. So some, like, like they didn't have steel in their architecture. They had a lot of stone and some wood in there. So they, they only had three stories. You couldn't really build much higher than three stories because things would crumble. So about three stories, people would sometimes, you know, like in the middle of the night, they don't want to get up, so they have cistern, and they throw that stuff out into the street through the upstairs window. The streets are gross. They had animals, not cars, which have a different sort of exhaust, if you get what I'm saying. It's all over the road. And, and the streets are just dirty. Like, the place is just dirty. It's just a dirty place, and people don't know about microbes and washing hands, and they don't know about a lot of, that's why people die so young. Anyway, um, when people entered a home, it was customary to remove your sandals, and and typically what would happen is, you know, if you're just like going to your house and you're nothing special, you just wash your own feet. Um, But when you had like a big dinner party like this, and you know, a a rabbi's coming in, you've got, you would have probably a servant, a slave would do this work. Some scholars say, that it wouldn't even be a, a Jewish slave. It would be like a, a Gentile slave or something like that. I don't know. The point is, it was beneath an esteemed rabbi, a, a messiah, to, to wash someone's feet. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in this scene. Taking off his clothes, wrapping himself in a towel, like a slave. And so Jesus is doing the lowliest work. I mean, that's level one. Yes, you already knew that. Boom, there you go. Now, level two. There's another level of meaning. Jesus is performing a task that points to his work on the cross. Notice how Jesus gets up, takes off his clothes, puts on the clothes of a servant. You know, the next time that John tells us of Jesus changing clothes, it's going to be before Pontius Pilate, where the prison guards strip Jesus and they put him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns, and they mock him. Pilate then looked to the crowds, and he says, Behold the man! As a way of poking fun at this foolish man who they're calling King of the Jews. Jesus would go to the cross as the ultimate servant. He would give his life to save the entire world. And the most significant metaphor here is this water. For washing. Notice that Jesus gets up during the dinner to wash the feet of his disciples. If they were already eating dinner when Jesus gets up to wash their feet, that means two things. The first thing is that their feet would already be washed by the time they're sitting down for dinner. They've already washed the crud off. Somebody's done it, or they've done it themselves. Okay, so that's That's the first thing. If Jesus is doing this in the middle of dinner, he's not the one washing the dirt off their feet. Which means, secondly, that whatever Jesus is doing is intentional and it's symbolic. It means something more than just the act of washing feet. Now, just because Jesus washes their feet during dinner and presumably they've already had the mud and the muck washed off, it doesn't mean that, like, would anyone really want to take my shoe off and touch my foot now? My, relatively, I'm, I've not stepped in any poop or anything. Feet are gross. And in, the, and in a lot of cultures, you know, in Bali, you're not even supposed to show the bottom of your foot to someone. That is like giving them the bird, okay? So like feet are just gross. And in this culture, like you just don't touch people's feet. So it doesn't really matter that there's microbes on the feet or, or gross things. The point is that masters don't wash feet. Masters don't take their clothes off and put a towel on and wash feet. What is Jesus doing? This means something. 
Water, historically, represents the power to cleanse from sin. The Israelites had ritual hand washings in the first century AD. Remember, John was baptizing people for repentance of sin. This is before a Christian baptism. This water has already, already had, what do they say? It carries freight. Water already carries meaning about cleansing from sin and unrighteousness. So when Jesus pours water into the bowl, it represents more than washing feet, but washing people clean of sin and death. Water like that turns an ordinary basin of water into, wait for it, a super bowl. That's what I'm talking about. Special for this Sunday, okay. So that we, we, we see, yeah, so bad. We see that Peter is shocked, and at first he wants to refuse Jesus' offer to wash his feet. After all, can you imagine somebody you really respect? Like maybe somebody, I don't know, that you only have seen in a suit before, or, you know, and, and all of a sudden they're stripping down um, to a robe or a towel or something like that, nothing inappropriate, but just weird, and they want to get close and like wash your feet. You know, there's something like kind of intimate about washing another person's foot. And, and this move towards intimacy presents a great moment of vulnerability. Jesus breaks the type of barriers we often put up with our superiors or um, inferiors or whatever you want to say. Uh, because when we're interacting with someone with superior status or superior rank, it's also kind of easy to like, they're there and I'm here and we've got this professional thing going on and let's leave it that way. But when God himself stoops to wash feet, there's no place to hide. There's no barrier. He exposes our vulnerability. He sees the dirt of our sin and our feet, the dirt we pick up daily from living the ways, the, the kind of the mixed motive ways that we live day in and day out. So in like keeping with the metaphor, what would Jesus see if he was washing your feet today? What would he see if he could see your sin and shame? Would you let him see it? He has to see it, encounter it, to wash it away. To let Jesus wash you is the beginning of conversion. It's required to follow Jesus. But it's pretty much one of the only things required at all. Sometimes when I talk to people about baptism, they say things like, I'm not ready. Or maybe when I know more things about the Bible. Or when I know my theology a little bit more. And what they often mean is, I don't feel good enough yet. I just need to get my life in order a bit more and then I'll be ready. Do you know that you're ready to receive baptism and receive the grace of Jesus? Do you know when you're ready for that? As soon as you realize you need it. Seriously. You know, I mean, if you know me, and I'm looking, not too many visitors, if you know me, um, you know I'm all about education. I'm all about growing in our faith and our knowledge. I'm, I'm a lifetime learner. I can't stop learning. I think it's important to my craft and to my faith and to your faith. Like, never stop learning and growing. That's 
That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to do that. But none of those things, learning more stuff, none of that is required by Jesus to know him. None of that is required by Jesus to be saved by him. None of education, knowing all that stuff, none of that is is required to be included into his family or to receive his all-encompassing grace. You realize that? Thank you. Amen. Baptism, being washed by Jesus, is not about being qualified or getting correct enough or getting holy enough. It's about our great need and his great grace coming together in the mystery of renewal and the waters of baptism. If you're here and you're coming to understand, like, yeah, I I need, I'm talking to teenagers too. (laughs) And grade schoolers who are with us today. If you're here and you're thinking, like, I'm starting to understand, I don't have it all together. I, I need the grace of Jesus. Let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about faith. I love to have those conversations. Stop disqualifying yourself because the God who puts a towel around his waist and washes feet, he's not disqualifying you. So Peter's uncomfortable with the grace of Jesus because grace makes us feel powerless when we all want to be able to do something about our lives, right? Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you really have no part with me. Peter wants more than grace. He wants to get washed all over. He's like, if that's how it's going to be, great. Then just do it all because I want the most. I want the full meal deal. Don't just give me a little bit. I want it all. And Leslie Newbegin writes, the washing of the feet is a sign of the total overturning of the power of this world in which the majesty of God is manifest in the menial service of a slave. To accept this, upside-down definition of what it means to be God, to accept this is to be converted. And nothing can be added to it. If you imagine that you can add something to what is given on the cross, you delude yourself. To try and add to it would be comparable of supposing one could increase the efficiency of a U-turn by doing a 360. Right? U-turn's pretty good, 180, but I'm going to do a 360. Guess what? You're right back where you started, right? We can't add to the grace of God. Can't add to the grace of Jesus, and we can't add to the work of the cross. We just need our feet washed. And we need our feet washed frequently because we're always walking in crap. So Jesus washes feet, which communicates to us on two levels, that Jesus is a servant, and Jesus serves by washing away our sin. Okay, remember that first question. How does Jesus define or redefine greatness for us? God is a servant. If God serves, then part of what it means to be great is to serve. Jesus isn't just acting like a servant. He is one. He isn't trying to merely look like a servant. He is just being himself. And he says, he who sees me sees the Father. God is a servant. Now, this would have been scandalous to them. It was scandalous because to them it was God or the the Messiah at this time stooping 
It was Jesus, uh, or to Jesus, it's a revelation of what it means to be Lord, what it means to be great. How do we define greatness today? Uh, the popular atheist Richard Dawkins once said, I have to do this, like a little accent, because it just sounds atheister. <laughs> no, I can't do it. No, I don't, he, he says, I don't see, the, you know, like someone from like the empire, you know what I mean? Okay, I don't see Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross worthy of grandeur of the title supernatural. This is what Dawkins writes. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, continues Dawkins, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or religion has ever proposed. And as human beings, I think that we often think that Dawkins is right. But we somehow know he's not right. We think greatness is tied up with power, but somehow, even in our non-Christian myths as a human society, we keep on coming back to this inherent knowledge that greatness is about sacrificial giving. Look at most of the great myths of history. Let's, let's look at a common myth, because I, I know we have our kids up, which gives me an excuse to talk about things like the Marvel Universe. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we have a modern-day mythology of demigods like Thor and Thanos, superhumans like Captain America and Hulk, and technologically advanced heroes like Iron Man. Iron Man is always a step ahead of his enemies, outthinking them, outsmarting them, developing strategies and technology that help him defeat whatever evil can throw Earth's way. Meanwhile, his shield of armor, his literal Iron Man suit, hides his vulnerable flesh and his even more vulnerable insecurities and ego. In the last film of the series, I've given you enough time. If you haven't seen it, you just don't care, so you won't care what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> in, in the end, you know, it wasn't Iron Man's strength or guile that rescued Earth. You know, in the last movie, he had finally met an enemy that he just couldn't reckon with. Like, he just couldn't defeat this evil Thanos dude. Um, except for one way one way that Thanos would not have expected, and that was the way of doing the one thing that could undo this great evil that would also kill him. And so we have this great, powerful hero in modern-day mythology. All of these films, it was like 11 or 15 films, I don't remember how many films led up to this point. Everyone beating each other up. And in the end, it takes weakness. And this, I mean, the same thing is true with Star Wars. Uh, Isabella and I were just talking about uh, Return of the Jedi where Darth Vader has to give himself, right, to defeat the Emperor. And in the latest one, if you haven't seen that, I, I gave you a pass, but like, something like that happens again, okay? okay. <laughs> we can't escape the narrative. The way of Jesus is the way of true greatness. To be like Christ is to serve and that's another reason why Jesus' behavior was so shocking. 
because his disciples are expected to imitate the master. In taking off his clothes and putting on a towel, Jesus was foreshadowing his own death on the cross, but he was also showing us how we are invited to die. We don't die for the sin of the world. Only Jesus could do that. It is finished, amen? Amen. There's only one going to the cross. There's only one person who dies for the sin of the world, and his name is Jesus, and he's risen and he reigns. But we're still called to die like our master. And our death is a death to selfishness so that others might thrive. Basically, when you and I are selfish, somebody else is missing out on some thriving. And the the journey of a disciple isn't to end our life on a cross. The journey of a disciple is those moment-by-moment, case-by-case, small deaths that lead to the bettering of the people in our lives, the blessing them. And I gotta say, like, I, I am sure it's horrible to die on a cross, um, but that's about a day, and we're talking about a lifetime of little deaths. That's not easy, and you know it's not easy. You know what's absolutely amazing to me in the story? is that Jesus washes Judas's feet right along with the other's disciples. He washes the feet of the one who's going to betray him because he knows where he is, where he came from, where he's going. Jesus doesn't serve other people to bolster his reputation or make himself liked. He doesn't serve in order to be seen as a great leader as a servant leader, as the kids are all saying today. He's great, and therefore, he serves. And that's the point. He reveals what the Father is like, and to be the Father is to serve. To be like Christ, then, is to serve. Full stop. So what does it mean for me, for you, to be a disciple of Jesus, of a God like that? It means we imitate him. It means we serve. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. It levels the playing field. It means that the church should be a place where we're devoted to one another. A place where love and grace eclipse social class. The world needs to see a church that is devoted to one another in love. The world needs to see our love for each other and for our neighbors because that's how they'll know what our God is like. We serve out of the love of the Lord. Again, Leslie Newbegin writes, our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe the master. Our neighbor is the authorized agent appointed to receive what we owe the master. When we are overcome with love for Jesus or we want to serve him, we want to be devoted to him, the way we do that is worship together and serving. Worship together and serving. It's not one or the other. Service without worship you'll dry up fast. You'll begin to worship your service. And worship without serving 
I don't know what you're worshiping, but it couldn't be the living God that calls us, you know what I'm saying? It's, you'll become the Dead Sea, where you're just taking in, but nothing's coming out, and you will die. It's ebb and flow, it's worship, and it's service. So what does it look like in our culture to wash one another's feet? What does it look like to cover each other's sin with forgiveness, to serve sacrificially? I think it starts, no doubt, with humbly knowing our own need for Jesus to wash us clean on a regular basis. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for revealing yourself for not giving us some object lesson or um, some strange parable that we're supposed to decipher. But we have, we have an episode of your life where you're just being you. To be you is to serve, to give yourself. And I'm so grateful that the way you give yourself isn't merely as an example but it starts with forgiveness. It starts with, uh, with rescuing what cannot rescue uh, itself, humanity, creation. So Lord, I pray uh, in two directions. One, that you would help us to come regularly face-to-face with uh, our own limitations. That you would build in true humility in us, that we could come to you and receive your cleansing, your forgiveness. And Lord, as we come to know more and more whose we are, saved by grace, intentionally put here on this planet to reflect your kingdom, I pray then that we would begin to live more fully into the life you call us into. To be so secure in whose we are and where we're going that we can learn to more fully empty ourselves into the service of others.